Hey everyone, this is Matt Kamen, your host for Nonprofit on the Rocks and co-founder of Envision Consulting, which is a national consulting company for nonprofits in both recruiting and strategy. And with us as always is Ashley Watterson, our producer for this show. How are you doing, Ashley? Great, Matt. I'm so excited to be back to work. I feel like we had a stretch where you didn't have any interviews for me to edit. And that's why people are wondering why we've had a gap in our schedule. And now you're just like, boom, boom, boom. We've got them all lined up. I'm curious about something, actually. So we are behind. It has been a few weeks since we've launched our last one. And my question to you, Ashley, is have people noticed? Like, do they care? Did you get a text from your mom and be like, oh, finally, I don't have to listen to this shit anymore? Like, be honest. <laughs> I... The sad thing is, is I didn't get a text from my mom saying, why hasn't there been another episode? <laughs> so it does make one wonder. You know who would notice that we haven't done another episode is Genevieve Reator, who That's is our one listener and happens to be, ironically, or fittingly, our guest uh, on today's episode. No, that's true. So I need our one listener, Genevieve, to know that I am so thankful to have you interviewed today on the show because she's a fan. She is a fan, Ashley. And not only is she a fan, she is hashtag team Ashley all day long. I love that so much. I'm not going to lie. My favorite part of the interview is when you asked her if I should no longer be on the payroll. Sorry, spoiler coming up. And she is firmly in Camp Ashley. So Genevieve, you're my new bestie. And thank you so much for saying that. Yeah, no, she read me a little bit and was like, under no circumstances, is Ashley going anywhere? And you should give <laughs> Ashley a raise. And I was like, but like, I only have so much change in my back pocket. And she was like, look, whatever you got, she deserves it. I know. And I so appreciate it because... I need someone in my corner, you for do. sure. You do, you do. So it's been so long, Ashley. I am beyond rusty. I don't need, what do we even talk about in this in this show? Like, what do you and I talk about? This is the part they forward. They do the 30 second skip through all of this. Yeah. So really we can talk about whatever we want. Like what I was thinking I would talk to you about is Botox. Mm. I've, okay, I'm 43, even though you asked me if I was 53, one of the most recent episodes. And to be fair to you, I've got some lines on my forehead that might suggest I am older than 43. Talk me into some Botox. Why should I consider it? I am all about Botox. And so I'm going to tell you, Ashley, there's a part of me that like died inside with the happiness that you gave me that you're ready to go in for Botox. <laughs> hey, look, look, I didn't even say, I said I'm ready to be open to a conversation about no. Botox. Nope, it's time. I'm so happy you mentioned it. It's time. I'm not allowed to as your employer. I guess I can't really say anything about it. But now that you have, it's time. It's time. I don't know what this says. I don't know what the commentary is here. But the influence you have on me, like at the moment, it stands at Botox and my weekly old-fashioned <laughs> that I really look forward to. My Thursday night old-fashioned that I make because... I started trying brown liquor because of you. So I, I mean, my mom wants to meet you, but does she? What's her real opinion going to be now that I've admitted how you've influenced me? I think it's time for us to officially end the show. If you are officially, finally into Botox and brown liquor, I, I don't. What I don't more know. can you teach me? Yeah, I don't, I don't think, is there anything next? No, we're done. We're done. 
<laughs> I still need to run a homeless shelter in New Jersey. <laughs> That's definitely still on the to-do list. I will tell you that I do talk about said homeless shelter in New Jersey with Genevieve. You do. I do. I do. So this episode is a little bit of a downer, but so important. You know, for me, it was totally eye-opening. I didn't realize the need and the food insecurity in this country as much as it is now, especially with inflation. And, you know, Genevieve and the Westside Food Bank plays a huge role in, in feeding kids and feeding families. And it's just such a great organization. And she's absolutely spectacular. This one I felt really lucky to be able to do. Yeah. And just in case there's anyone left, because once you said this episode was a downer, like we lost half of the three people. So what, we're down to one and a half people now. I don't know how that works, looks, but in case anyone is left, it's tragic to, to think about how many people are working full-time jobs and can't afford to feed themselves and their families. And that is a tragedy of 2022, that that's still the reality for people. But you guys do such a great job talking about this and it's so interesting and informative and important. And, and I also want people to listen to just how amazing Genevieve's story is and truly like how amazing at the end of the day, being the CEO of this organization, how much that means to her even more. So on that note, Ashley, can we let our one and a half listener into the show? Yes, we will let our one and a half listener into the show now. Enjoy this episode with Genevieve. Hello, Genevieve, my friend, the new CEO at the Westside Food Bank. How are you tonight? I am well. Thank you so much. I'm really, really pleased to be on the show. Thank you. So two things before we toast. The first is you are our fan. You're our listener out there. It's me. I'm the one. You're the one. You're the one. So you're going to be talking to yourself. Here's my question, Genevieve. Should we keep Ashley on payroll? I got to stand up for Ashley here. I think she does an amazing job. And I think uh, she deserves some recognition and appreciation. So I, I'm team Ashley. Yes. Huh. Hashtag team Ashley. All right. I can deal with that. I feel like she's stepping up a little bit. She's going to keep that part in. So, all right. You know, she hasn't walked out in a huff yet. And I think that says a lot. <laughs> Oh God, that means I have to give her a raise. All right. And second of all, congratulations. You are now officially the CEO of the Westside Food Bank. And for anybody who's listening outside of Los Angeles, it's the West Side of LA. So you are in Santa Monica, California. So you are the new CEO. I am so, so, so excited for you. Congratulations. Thank you. So what we're going to do is we're going to toast you. What are you drinking this evening? So I prepared, I have a glass of Prosecco. Nice. So no, no rocks in it, but um, it's cold enough on its own. I've got some very fancy bourbon for you. Cheers, my friend, congratulations. Cheers. Mm. So because you are the CEO of the Westside Food Bank, I really did want to talk about food insecurity and how inflation is truly affecting those in need even more. Also, by the way, the issue of baby formula, which is a huge problem right now, which is me timestamping this episode, but I think that's okay. And then I really love your story of how you got to where you got to. And so I think that that's something that 
I'm very excited to talk to you about. But first, let's get the, the bummer stuff out of the way. So food insecurity. I read, I read a study, I think it was last week, that two-thirds, two-thirds of this country is living paycheck to paycheck. Is that correct? I, I can't speak to the exact figure, but that sounds about right to me. And, and it could even be more. I mean, there's so many of us that really don't have savings. And especially after COVID, those that did have savings, a lot of folks got through all of that savings and not only went through their savings and, and depleted their emergency funds, but have probably run up their credit cards and are now in debt. And with inflation, we know that the cost of carrying that debt is going up. So even people that we thought of as, as maybe middle class prior to COVID certainly are struggling now in a way that's new. Hmm. So it is very depressing, I think, with inflation going up as fast as it is. How have you seen your demand for your services gone up? Well, I kind of want to dial it back even a little bit further, because the God's honest truth is that before COVID even hit, food insecurity was already at a record high level. I've been at Westside Food Bank for 18 years. And during that time, much of that time, we saw food insecurity increase by maybe four or 5% a year, which is terrible, but manageable. And then 2008 happened and it pretty much doubled. We saw the need go up by like 85, 90%. And we were just starting to recover from that when COVID hit. And so for low-income people, it takes longer to recover from these really tough economic disruptions. So the need was already really high before COVID hit. And then we saw another doubling of need. And at the height of the pandemic, at the beginning, when things were shut down, probably two and a half times the need. So that has been a real challenge. And similar to the 2008 recession, it's not going down. How, I mean, just even to dial it back, how many... How many hungry families do you think you feed on a weekly basis? First of all, I, I'm sort of trying to get away from the language of saying hungry families, because the truth is that people are accessing our food on a regular basis. So hopefully they're not hungry because we're, we're providing food and good food and nutritious food. But also, I think it's really an economic question because people have limited resources. And the cost of housing in our service area in particular, in LA in general, is really, really high. So even what we might think of as middle-class families are spending 50 to 70% of their income just on their housing. And so our food is reaching people in a way that helps them to reserve those resources to stay housed. In terms of the numbers, it's hard to get an exact figure, but our estimate is that about 150,000 plus people are receiving our food. And that's over a year period. And so some of those folks are families that are relying on us month after month as part of how they get their nutritional needs met. And then some of those numbers are people that maybe are served at a, at a shelter or a meal program one or two times and then move on. I love being schooled on this program, so I will no longer say hungry families. I, I didn't even think about that. So 60 to 70% of families or people's income is spent on housing, which is insanity. There's no, there's no money left over. I mean, and gas is so much, so much more expensive than it ever was. So 
There's yeah. no money left over for food. Yeah. So in answer to your question about inflation, it's putting even more stress on families. So the families that were already getting food from us are now saying we need more food because food costs more, everything else costs more. And we're seeing even more new households coming and saying, I was trying to hold out, but as it happens, I need help. And that's what I'm concerned about for the next you know, couple of years. How are we going to meet this expanded need when costs are going up for us as well? So we get about half of our food on the wholesale market. We purchase it from brokers, just like Vons or Albertsons or Safeway or any grocery chain buys from wholesale food brokers. So do we. And so prices are going up on the wholesale level. And not only that, but there are some supply chain issues and there's some just supply period issues. And we are in competition with companies that have very big contracts, these big grocery chains, Walmart. If a broker has to fulfill an order, they're going to prioritize those big companies over our food bank that's maybe buying one truckload or two truckloads a week. I just, okay. So I don't think people understand how food banks exactly work in this country. And Ashley's going to make fun of me for this because I bring it up as all the time. But when I did run the shelter in New Jersey, my favorite part of the job was taking the van, driving to the food bank in Newark, New Jersey, meeting with the staff there, filling up the van and bringing it back and unloading it and then watching the food get given to families and individuals who needed it. I'll be honest with you. I think I was most impacted by the senior citizens that didn't have food and needed our food, that they were literally eating cat food. I remember that very clearly. I remember I had a few elderly grandmas come to the shelter and they needed food because they were eating cat food. So I was really struck by who needed it. Mm -hmm. and, and the fact that we all have, I think, we all have our own ideas of who homeless people are, who hungry people are, who people living in poverty are, and it's your neighbor. It's everybody. So many people are in need. How do you do it? Like, how do you serve the need? You can't possibly serve everybody. So it's a big challenge. And I think that you're right that many people don't understand what a food bank is, much less how a food bank works. So the first myth that I would like to clarify is the difference between a food bank and a food pantry. Because a lot of people will call what I think of as a food pantry, a food bank. And in fact, many of them have food bank in their names. But for our purposes, we consider a food bank to be a hub. So we're a warehouse facility that in our case, doesn't distribute food out of our warehouse directly to households, but we are distributing to about 65 different food programs that just like you and your van in Newark are coming to our warehouse, picking up food and then distributing it out through their programs. So that's what a food bank is. A food bank is the warehouse, kind of the middleman in the equation. And the reason a food bank exists is because we can buy food by the truckload and we can accept donations of food by the truckload. We can take all that into our big facility, whereas a food pantry that's being run by volunteers at a faith organization or in a small room as part of another nonprofit that has other programs, they don't have that kind of space or capacity. So that's why this middle rung exists in that system. Um, and then we would think of a food pantry as being a place where families or individuals go to get free groceries. 
Got it. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think people don't understand that. And that is really important because even though you may not hand food to families individually, if not for you, there would be no such thing as a food pantry or my program at the homeless shelter just wouldn't have existed. So can you give our listeners an example of maybe a family or a person who has received your food that we wouldn't necessarily think would need it? Yeah, there are so many stories like that. Because Westside Food Bank focuses so much on produce, we find that we give out produce to our food pantry partners, let's say like a St. Joseph Center. And then individuals and households come to that food pantry to pick up food. And they'll let us know that this is the only source of produce that they have. And we're talking about people who work full-time jobs someone who is a cashier at CVS, someone who is a home health aide taking care of somebody's grandparent. We're talking about custodians at school. We're talking about college students. There are so many college students that are either raising families of their own or who are part of the family that they grew up in's economic uh, self-sufficiency. So it's not just the image that we have of someone who's unhoused, who's begging on the street. That's really about 10% of our food goes to unhoused individuals. The vast majority, 90% of our food is going to people who work full-time jobs, but don't make a living wage and are not able to, to keep their households running without the help of food assistance. Wow. Okay. I need to repeat that because that's so important. 90% of the food that you donate, that you give out, goes to folks who are working, who have full-time jobs, who can't afford to buy food. That's, that's really terrible. I'm really, I mean, it's so important that you're there, but that's, that's terrible. It is terrible. And it's terrible when you think about, for example, veterans. We have uh, thousands of veterans that live in Los Angeles that come to food pantries because they don't have enough money to provide food for their families. And that's shameful. People who have served our country, they should be able to have a living that provides their families with food. When we think about our seniors, seniors who live on fixed incomes, I, I was just at a meeting this morning where I learned that there are senior citizens living in Pacific Palisades, one of what we think of as the most wealthy communities probably in the country but you can't eat your house. <laughs> and if you, if you bought your house 50 years ago when the housing market was still reasonable and your social security income is not keeping up with the cost of living, you have to find the, the difference somewhere. So we're providing groceries for seniors. I mean, we're working with Meals on Wheels West and other Meals on Wheels programs that while they're delivering those meals, once a month, they'll bring a box of fresh groceries because just providing a couple meals a day is not enough for those seniors. Genevieve, we are really downers right now, but so important though. I mean, I think that a lot of us, we know that there are people who are hungry, but we don't necessarily see it or we choose to ignore it or we don't want to read about it. And it really is. I mean it because I've learned it. Like it's our neighbors, it's people across the street. Like we know people in our lives who cannot afford to go to the supermarket and buy food. And so my last downer question for you is what keeps you up at night? 
Wow, that that is the question that that you ask a CEO, right? What what's the real thing that that keeps you up at night? And I think for me, it's about how how do we not just provide the band aid that is food today, but how do we work together to create a system that doesn't leave people out? That's what I really want to think about because I am really proud that we are providing amazing, great, nutritious food, fresh produce, lean meats, all the pantry staples consistently. We are doing a great job. And I have to give a shout out to my staff who work hard every day, who have worked through the pandemic, who have in many cases, you know, had to sacrifice seeing their own families not seeing their elderly grandparents because they didn't want to put them at risk, but coming to work every day. So I'm proud of the work that we do and we do a great job, but we shouldn't have to. I would like to be put out of business. I love my job, but I would much rather that the Westside Food Bank and every other food bank in this country did not have to exist. So come on, people, put us out of business, please. <laughs> That's the question. How do we create an economic system where people who work full-time don't need food assistance. How do we? Well, that's a bigger question than, than, than I can do alone. And I think part of it is that we have to work together. I am a big believer in that all ships rise together. When I think about my nonprofit colleagues here in Los Angeles and, and really all around the world, I don't think of anyone as a competitor. I think of us as collaborators. And we have got to collaborate because all of the issues that make people food insecure are interrelated. It's, it's education, it's the school to prison pipeline, it's mental health, it's access to healthcare, it's childcare, it's family leave, it's wages and, and, and a living wage. So the more that we work together and collaborate, I think the better chance that we're gonna have to actually solve some of these entrenched societal problems that have existed for a long time. Westside Food Bank is 40 years old. When it was founded, our founders thought, oh, it's a recession, let's help people out for a few years and then we'll find something else to do. And 40 years later, we'll, we're still here. And the truth is food banks, even really big ones, are not able to do everything that's needed. We're maybe a 10th of food assistance for low-income households. What CalFresh can do, what used to be called food stamps, is now called SNAP throughout the country. And here in California, it's called CalFresh. That's a much bigger program that has a much bigger capacity to help people. And it's also in many ways more efficient. I mean, food banks are great and we can be very efficient, but there's nothing more efficient than giving people money that they can spend in a grocery store to buy the actual exact food items that their family wants and needs. I interviewed Amy Turk, who's the CEO of the Downtown Women's Center. And what she said was, every time you use your key to open up your house door, remember how lucky you are that you have a house. So every time now that I'm going to eat a hamburger, I'm going to realize how lucky I am that I could afford that hamburger. Fine. But like, what can we do? Tell me what we could do as an individual that reminds us every day how lucky we are that then we can help people who are any kind of food insecurity. There's so many ways to give and so many ways to help. And I think everyone has to kind of find their, their own path. One of the things that we talk about in food banking is that it's much more efficient 
to give nonprofits money than to donate food in kind. And part of that is, of course, we don't want you to clean out your pantry and give us something old that's past its due date that you wouldn't serve to your own family. So if you are going to donate food, we definitely want you to donate good food that you would feel proud to give to your own family. And we see people do it all the time, especially for kids. It's great for kids to go to the grocery store with their parents and shop for the foods that they like because kids don't know what money is and it doesn't mean anything. But if they go to the store and they buy the, the brand of cereal that they like and they know that some other child is going to get to eat that, that's a wonderful thing. And that's instilling that value of helping others in children. And there have been studies. If you introduce a child to a cause before they're 18 and, and consistently repeat that message, they will stay connected to that cause for the rest of their lives. And actually, I have a great story about that that, I, that I'll share. But I also just want to remind folks that, yeah, you can go to the store. You can even go to Costco or, or some other kind of wholesale uh, place to buy food. But even still, you're not going to get the same value for the dollar that the food bank can get when we're buying food by the truckload. So if you give us a dollar, let's just keep it simple. We can buy a case of beans. If you go to the 99 cent store with a dollar, maybe you can buy one can of beans. And maybe if you go to Costco, maybe you can get six cans of beans, but we're going to get 24 cans of beans with that same dollar. So if you're thinking about efficiency, money is the way to give. And, and there's a lot of transparency. You can go onto GuideStar. You can look at the 990s of all the organizations that you give to and make sure that they're on the up and up or even better, go visit, get to know the staff. Is there anything else that you want folks to know about food? I'm going to assume if you're listening to this show, you can afford going to the supermarket. So is there anything else that you want to tell our listeners out there? I've been on the other side of this equation. I know what it's like to be that mom that isn't sure how I'm going to fill the cupboards for my kids, that isn't sure where we're going to live, that's been couch surfing uh, on, at friends' homes while I tried to, to recover from a period of instability. And there's nothing like food. There's just something about having food in your belly, knowing that there's food in the cupboards. It just makes everything else easier. And that's something that, that I want everyone to remember. And also that people are hungry. I mean, every mom knows this. <laughs> They're hungry all day. <laughs> people need to eat multiple times a day. But people also need to eat all year long. So we get a lot of support in the winter months around the holidays. But now with summer uh, approaching, I think it's important to remember that food banks need support throughout the year. And the summer months are an especially great time to provide support to food banks, whether it's through a food drive or financial support or volunteerism. That's a really important time. And everyone needs to eat and everyone deserves to eat. I want people to fully understand your story. Your mom used food stamps and I would love for you to tell people about what it actually meant when she had to go to that cashier with her food stamps, what it felt like to go with your mom and take those food stamps out of the book. So here's what I remember. I remember being about five years old and going with my mom to the grocery store. And I was a pretty precocious kid even back then. And we'd get to, to our turn uh, to pay. And back then food stamps were actual coupons. They were in a book 
that was stapled together and they were perforated. And if you tore them, they were no good. So you had to tear it out perfectly along the perforation. And they looked kind of like money, but they were multicolored. So it was very, very obvious. This wasn't money. And I remember it just kind of took forever because she would have to very carefully tear. Each book had however much money in it, maybe $30 worth and in different denominations. And it just took so long. And I said, mom, why don't you tear them out while we're in line or ahead of time so that we don't take so much time? People behind us are getting annoyed. And she said, well, it's just one of the rules that you can't tear them out ahead of time. You have to tear them out um, in front of the cashier when you're in line. And I didn't think about it at the time. I was a kid. I was like, oh, it's the rules. But later I realized that it was just one of kind of many small indignities that hardworking people like my mom had to endure because people were so concerned about fraud. What if you gave your food stamps, traded them away for drugs? And so the person giving the coupon at the register isn't actually the person who's the recipient. And there's so little fraud in these systems, but that's what people focus on. People are in need. This is food. And I'm so grateful now that because of the kind of advocacy that people who've been in this space for so many years have done, that people don't have to do that anymore. We now have what we call an EBT card, and it works just like a debit card, and you don't have to hold up the line at the grocery store, and nobody has to know that you're using a, a government safety net program to, to buy that food. And there are still restrictions. You can't buy alcohol. You can't buy toiletries, although if you, if you need food, you probably need things like diapers and, you know, tampons as well, but that's a whole other issue. And that advocacy makes a difference and giving people their dignity is so important. I mean, I remember when I was a single mom, I had what was called WIC. It's a program for women, infants and children. And back then I'm not, I'm actually not sure what it is now, but back then it was these kind of checks that you would give. And each check was for specific things and you had to buy exactly the right size that you couldn't if it was a 64 ounce coupon you couldn't buy a juice that was 68 ounces and you'd have to go back and find the wick product it was very difficult and not only that but i had to take my kids in every three months to get their finger pricked and their blood tested to prove that they were nutritionally deficient and boy i gotta tell you when you have three young children and you gotta drag them screaming into an office where they know somebody is gonna poke their finger and it's gonna hurt that is not an easy thing to do. And it sucks. Wait, 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 wait. So <laughs> just because you were on WIC, you actually had to take your kids in on a quarterly basis to get their blood test? Seriously? Yep. It, maybe it wasn't quarterly, but it was at least a couple times a year. And I don't know if that's still a requirement. I hope to God that it isn't. But I can tell you as a single mom, it was I, I stopped using WIC because I was like, I'm not putting my kids through that. It's not worth it. Honestly, why I wanted you to share that is that you were the child of a mom who needed food stamps to get you fed. And here you are now the CEO of the Westside Food Bank providing food to families who don't have it. And how cool is that? Yeah, it's pretty powerful. And it's why I do this work. I love knowing that I get to give other parents the same sense of relief that I felt, that my mom felt when we knew that no matter what other challenges lay ahead, there was going to be food. 
there was going to be food. I'm also a Puerto Rican woman, so I want to feed people. <laughs> this is part of my culture is food is really important. So I love that I get to be a part of that. What does it mean to your mom in everything that she went through, right? In everything that she did, having to go to that supermarket, having to wait in that line, having to rip out that stupid check, that you are now the CEO of this amazing, wonderful, nonprofit, social good organization, providing food to people who need it. I think that on some level, it provides context for all of her sacrifice. It makes it worth it to know that everything that she did for us, not just for me, but for my siblings as well, that it's worth it. it. It meant something. My success is her success. And I think she recognizes that her sacrifice made it possible. And the sacrifice of her own parents and ancestors made it all possible. This is the American dream is that you can come to this country and you can make a better life for yourself and for your kids. And that when every generation progressively does better, that's the achievement of the American dream. So when you talk to your kids and you, and you talk to them about what your mom went through and what you went through with them, what do you tell them? What do you want them to know moving forward? Well, I think it's been a great benefit to my kids that they've grown up around volunteerism, being exposed to nonprofit organizations, social good organizations that are helping people. So they're pretty grounded and they know how to give back. My youngest daughter who just graduated college, her job at school was fundraising <laughs> and she was the top fundraiser, a student caller. And she just said, I watched you do it. And I felt like it was something that was doable. So I'm like the world's worst uncle and godfather. Instead of giving gifts, I like take them to volunteer. I bring them to a homeless shelter and make them volunteer. And as best I can try to just show them how lucky they are. And I don't know if it works. I don't know as a teenager, if you really even understand that, but that's what I do. And I think it's really important that kids do volunteer and do kind of see how lucky they are, whoever they are. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're rich or you're middle-class or you're poor, there is always going to be somebody with more and always going to be somebody with less. And if you remember that, then it's always really important to go out and just do the best you can and see how lucky you are. So that's what I do. So if any of my friends want me to be a, a godfather, you better think about it because I'm going to force your kid to volunteer. <laughs> they may not like it in the moment, but I think later in life, they'll look back and appreciate it. I hope so. So this kind of relates back to the idea of how when you introduce kids to being of service at a young age, it can really pay dividends in the future. So I've been at Westside Food Bank for 18 years. And there is a, a school in the Palisades that every year, the fourth grade class participates in the hunger walk. They take it on as a project. They fundraise from members of the church, from the school, and they walk. And then the, the fifth graders also do something for the food bank. And the second graders collect cans on the hundredth day of school. And over and over again, 
the kids have been introduced to the idea of the food bank. They come and volunteer and sort food. And so there are, you know, literally generations of families that have been supporting the food bank. And so when COVID happened, there were some college kids who had been those fourth graders, those fifth graders who volunteered with the food bank. And they heard about the food waste that was happening and farms getting plowed under and farmers pouring out milk. And they thought we have to do something. And they figured out how to connect with a farm and they rescued 60,000 eggs that were gonna go to waste because I think the restaurant or the hotel chain that was gonna buy them couldn't buy them. They rented a U-Haul truck and picked up the eggs, brought them to Westside Food Bank at a time when we really needed those eggs because the supply chain was shot and it was just really a tough time. And now those college kids have founded an organization of a completely separate 501c3 that is nationwide connecting farms to truckers to food banks and they've rescued millions of pounds of food. And it all started because they volunteered at Westside Food Bank when they were kids and really cared about giving back to the community. Oh, wow. Okay, that is a great way to end our food insecurity conversation. And now I wanna talk about (laughs) you. So many episodes ago, my friend Kim uh, Peterson was on the show and she talked about channeling her inner Chad, which was her, her white, straight, male inner Chad voice to get what she wanted. And I so love that, that I always talk about my inner Chad. To get Although, what she deserved. To get what she deserved. Yes. She, she channeled her inner Chad to get what she absolutely deserved that me as a white man will always channel. And so you called me when you were having this conversation about now being the CEO, which again, like, I'm so happy to have a friend who is the CEO of the West Side Food Bank. I can't tell you how much this makes me so happy, but you channeled that inner Chad and you got something out of the show. So that makes me really happy that I do want people to know that like this show does actually have an impact. People do listen to it and get something out of it. So I want you to know Genevieve that you like, you made my day when you talked about channeling your inner Chad and I will tell Kim that she made an impact, so. She definitely did. As a person who is coming into this role, I'm a woman of color. The idea of channeling my inner Chad was really important to me because as someone from a non-traditional background, at least when you think about who leads nonprofits, especially nonprofits like the Westside Food Bank that have been around for 40 years, you don't necessarily imagine someone that looks like me or someone with my background. I've been on the other side of the food assistance equation, both as a kid growing up in a single parent household, and then as a single mother myself, I don't have a bunch of letters behind my name. It's very challenging. When I first called you years ago, I said, do you think I have a chance of taking a leadership role without going back to school? I don't really see how I can go back to school when I'm paying for my kids to go to college. (laughs) And yet I have the experience. And so It can be very challenging sometimes for people from non-traditional backgrounds to feel comfortable asking for the same level of compensation as well as recognition that someone from a more traditional background would feel no hesitation in asking for. And I thought about that a lot when I thought about my inner Chad because I thought 
if Chad walked into the room and said, I'm going to be the next CEO of the food bank, what kind of salary would they expect and deserve? And what do I deserve for my experience and for what I know I'm going to give? And I think it's important for people to know that it's okay to ask. It's okay to negotiate. It's important to negotiate. And if you are compensated at a level that that you feel is appropriate, you're going to give more to the organization and you're going to feel great about your job and you're more likely to stay in the job for a long time. So I think it does a service to the organization as well as to the individual. Thank you for saying that. A huge part of my job when we recruit and we put people into positions is that negotiation piece, right? Is that salary piece? And it is always so frustrating to me to listen to people not believe that they're worth more and not ask for more. And so I talked about this with Kim. Obviously, you and I talked about this offline in this interview, but I think if people hear it one more time, channel that inner Chad, like channel that guy and remember that you deserve everything that anybody else does. And so if I recruit you, for example, and you get that job offer, ask for the world. It never hurts. All they can say is no. And in fact, as a CEO, you're going to have to negotiate on behalf of the organization. So if you can show your board that you are capable and confident, then they know that that's the capable, confident person that's going to walk into a negotiation when you're negotiating on behalf of the organization. Yep. Okay. You had mentioned earlier, you don't have letters after your name. And so this is something that I talk to my clients about all the time. I do not believe in any way that you need any kind of degree to do a job. Like you just don't. I don't think you need a BA to be an executive director of a nonprofit. You need a degree if you're going to like perform surgery on somebody, but otherwise I'm not calling you doctor. Sorry to all my PhD friends out there. So my question to you is, what is your belief in terms of hiring staff now who don't have degrees? You know, I think it's a question of equity. And I'm very fortunate that I've been able to get the opportunities that I've had. Even before I rose to the CEO position, just being the chief development officer at an organization, most people have a master's degree. And people assumed that I had a master's degree. And in fact, I don't even have a bachelor's degree. And I think that it's really important. And of course, fair enough, I'm completely biased, (laughs) but I think it's really important to give people a chance and to recognize that there is life experience that is as valuable, or in some cases, even more valuable than a degree. And if you think about, I mean, I have kids now, my my youngest daughter just graduated from university and is 21, about to turn 22. Are you going to tell me that she's better suited for a job than I am with 20 years of professional experience? I mean, I love my daughter and she's great. She's got a great future ahead of her, but it's not the same. And so I think when we, as a sector, what I like to call the social good sector, and I could get on my soapbox about stop calling us nonprofits and defining us by what we don't do. Instead, let's talk about what we do do, which is social good. I think it's very important for this sector to lead the way in recognizing that if we're going to be talking about equity, 
in the people that we serve, we have to provide that same level of equity for our staff. And it's appalling. The social good sector, the, the statistics on how many women and people of color are leading organizations, the needle has not moved in 25 years. We've been talking about it for a long time, but nothing has really changed. I think it's starting to change now. And I think I'm a proud member of Association of Fundraising Professionals. And I'm proud to say that the AFP is strongly advocating against educational requirements and is strongly advocating for posting salary ranges when they post jobs. I think those things are really important because it helps to promote equity. And I think that's important. And if we are gonna talk about changing the world, we gotta start with ourselves. I'm really proud to be who I am, a person of color, a person who doesn't have all those letters behind their names and who still managed to rise to the top position at an organization that has been serving the community for 40 years. Does that mean that I have to change the name of my show? <laughs> I think I think that's up to you. I think uh, people still recognize that that nonprofit is a, a term that we use and that that's okay. So it does have a ring to it. I'm not sure that social good on the rocks is as good of a, uh, a title for a show. So I will leave the, the naming of your show up to you. I mean, now we got to bring in Ashley for this. Do we want to be social good on the rocks? I think we're going to have... Genevieve, you screwed me up. You fully screwed me up. I didn't know this was going to happen. so sorry. <laughs> and the second part, which I think is really important, and thank you very much for the honesty, is there are a lot of people out there who don't have diplomas who don't want to talk about it. And I appreciate and thank you very much for bringing that up, for, for talking about it. And I am the recruiter who fights to force my clients, my social good clients, not to ask for a degree if they don't need it. So thank you. I definitely think for diversity, equity, and inclusion practices, you should not and don't need to ask for a degree. Some positions that require it. If you're going to be a social worker, a psychologist, a doctor, mm -hmm. you definitely want to have those degrees. But that's it. But I don't think a CEO needs it. I mean, and even in the in the for-profit world, I mean, some of the most successful CEOs didn't have it. And I think it's important to recognize that and to not hold nonprofit or social good organizations to a different standard. We're already held to a different standard in that unlike a for-profit organization, we have to balance our books every year or no one will give us money. This whole idea of you're not an efficient nonprofit unless you have less than 20% of your expenses devoted to administration and fundraising is ridiculous. I mean, and yet it's a standard we all hold ourselves to. It's self-imposed. There's no law about that. But in the for-profit world, you can have years where you invest in your infrastructure and nobody calls that excessive overhead. They call it investments in your infrastructure. And then a few years in, you start to reap the results of that. But our kinds of organizations don't have that luxury. And so we have to make our investments in small increments. And honestly, if I'm going to be really honest on this show, I think that's part of why the Westside Food Bank and organizations like it still exist 40 years later. And we haven't solved these problems because it takes investment. 
And I think that we should not be shy about using that word. Donation is great and we want your donations and we're grateful for them, but it's not just charity. I would like for people to think about it as an investment. You're investing in an outcome. You wanna make the world a better place and that takes money. And we understand it in the business world. Let's understand it in the social good world. I agree a thousand percent. And I want to say something else about being a CEO, chief executive officer. CEO is a powerful title. And I will say, I'm going to share that the person that I'm succeeding, that was not his title. His title was executive director. And in the nonprofit social good world, it's very common for the top position to be called executive director. But one of the things that I asked for in my negotiation was to have a title change. And I wanted the title change to be from executive director to CEO, because I understand that as a woman of color with no degrees, that I'm already walking into a room at a disadvantage in some cases. And in the for-profit world, executive director doesn't necessarily mean the top position. You could be the executive director of this or the executive director of that. And I wanted everyone to know, whether I walk into a room full of business people who, who work in the for-profit world or other nonprofit folks, I need for people to know that I have the top job because I'm already walking into the room at a respect disadvantage just because of the color of my skin and my, my Hispanic heritage and, and whatever else people may know about me. I asked for it and I got it, but it was no small feat. And in fact, our board had to go back and, and revisit the bylaws in order to make that change. Mm. It was a good thing because our bylaws needed updating anyway. So me asking for what I felt I deserved was a benefit to the organization because there were some things in our bylaws that were outdated. And yet again, channeling your inner Chad. Channeling your inner Chad. Okay, so I have just two follow-up questions and I think this is really important and something else that I've learned along the way. My first question is as CEO of the Westside Food Bank, when you walk in that room, are people seeing you as CEO? Or are people seeing you as woman of color? Well, I think it depends on the room. And I think it depends on the context. Who, who else is in that room? Okay, I'm gonna be really honest. I'm revealing some secrets here. I read a book by Stacey Vanek Smith, who I'm a big fan of because I'm a giant nerd and I love NPR. And she was a NPR host. And it was called Machiavelli for Women. And it really talked about how there are just some subconscious things that exist in our culture that affect the way people behave and the way that people treat, in this case, women. Most people, I think, don't want to discriminate. Implicit bias is implicit. We don't know that we have it. And so I think that for me, one of the ways that I understood that I could overcome some of that implicit bias that people might have when I walk into the room as a woman of color is by having that title, because there's also implicit bias in how you treat a CEO. And, and that's part of why I wanted the title is because I wanted to have one more tool in my tool belt to overcome implicit bias. 
when do you think that you will be able to walk in that room as the CEO and not have to worry about somebody seeing you as anything other than that? You know, I think I'm really lucky in that I already have that to some extent. We live in a fairly liberal bubble here in Los Angeles. That's not to say that everyone shares every belief that we have, but I, I think we're lucky to live in a part of the world that has made a lot of progress when it comes to women, people of color, not everywhere, but I know that it's better than in most places. So I feel really lucky in that. I hope that there comes a time when none of this will be an issue for anyone, but that's when we can talk about equality, but we can't talk about equality until there's equity. Until everybody starts from the same place, you can't treat people the same way. So what is next for you after you are in this role at CEO of the Westside Food Bank? Is this it? I mean, who knows? I've just started in this role. So my, my commitment and my vision is to do the best job I can right now for this organization. I'm coming into an organization that has been around for 40 years. It's done an amazing job. I mean, unlike some CEOs, I'm inheriting an organization that is financially strong, that has a great reputation in the community, that knock on wood has escaped any scandal. So I have an opportunity to start from a place of strength. I would like to see us become a sustainable, a more sustainable organization. We don't own our own building. And that's something that, that I'm hoping to change within the next couple of years. Because even if, and I don't see this happening, unfortunately, but even if food insecurity were somehow to be magically solved tomorrow, we have a great organization, a great board, an incredible staff. We'll tackle the next problem. So I want to make sure this organization has that level of sustainability. I think we've also grown from being, like many organizations, from being kind of scrappy and grassroots and board members pitching in to do work that staff should do to now being a really professional organization. And I want to help get us to that next level of professionalism and recognizing that we are a major player. And I think it's important, all of us in this sector, to recognize that we're one of the biggest employers in Los Angeles and, and even across the country. We're major players. We play a very important role in so, the economics of society and of our communities. So what you're telling me that I'm hearing out of all of this is that if I, even if I try to recruit you away, you're not going anywhere. Not anytime soon, no. I, I just took this job. I'm very excited about it. I love this organization. I love the Westside Food Bank. I want to make sure that, that the Westside Food Bank is prepared to face the challenges of the future and to do it with a new outlook, to be innovative, to use the technology that's available, to think outside the box and welcome in all kinds of voices. And I think to be an organization that stands for not just what we do really, really well, which is feed people and provide great nutritious food. We don't just fill bellies, but we are providing the full range of nutrients. But I also wanna be part of that bigger picture of making sure that we're working towards a world that doesn't leave people out. So where can our listeners find the Westside Food Bank to make a donation? So just in case I forget, since I am the listener, um, 
The website is very easy. It's wsfb.org. And there you will find all of our information. We're also on social media. So Westside Food Bank on Instagram, Westside Food Bank on Facebook, Wside Food Bank on Twitter, because back in the day, they names could only be so long. And uh, Westside Food Bank on YouTube. That's awesome. Well, I want to end on a toast. So I have no children and I chose very carefully not to have any children because I don't want to, but to your mom and to you as a mom and to truly all the parents out there, like it's a lot of work and everything that you've gone through, your mom's gone through, whatever it is. So to Iris for raising such a crazy, talented, amazing kid, toast. Cheers to Iris. Thank you so much, Genevieve, for joining me. I hope as a fan of this show that it was everything and more that you hoped that it would be. It was all of that and more. And as a person who's produced shows, I'll say you did a great job. And I know whatever we messed up, Ashley will fix and post. And this has been so much fun. I I will toast with you any day. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I do not stand by the Ashley comment. And thank you very much. Team Ashley. Hashtag Team Ashley. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Matt. So what'd you think of our incredible episode with our one listener? Yeah, I know. I'm sorry that the half listener peeled off there somewhere. Truthfully, Matt, that episode was phenomenal. And it was heartwarming and heart-wrenching at the same time. The work that they're doing there is just so important, hence the heartwarming part. But then the amount of people that need what they do is just heart-wrenching. And I, I love that Genevieve says that as much as she loves the organization, she wishes they didn't have to exist, you know? And also, Matt, oh my gosh, her own story. Being on food stamps herself as a child of a single mom, then being a single mom herself and having to get food stamps for her own family. And now look at her, the CEO of the West Side Food Bank. What an incredible story. I know. No, I know. I know. And, and I'm going to say something that I'm only going to tell you and Genevieve already knows because she's our one listener, that at the end of this show, I actually had feelings like human feelings and I teared up at the end of the show and she wait, wait, wait. were you able to tear up because of the the Botox and the like do you still have ducks that I mean, you were working I mean I don't know if like liquid came out of my eyes but like I felt like if they had liquid in them that I would have actually had a tear in my eye that's that, that makes sense yeah yeah but she actually made me like have an emotion and I got so mad at her afterwards I was like you don't get to make me tear up but she did and I just am like I said I'm so happy that we were able to do this I'm so 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 impressed with her story and what she does and also what the food bank does you know hunger is something that I don't think we realize just how big of an issue it is in this country and making sure to feed people you know babies up until the elderly is just I mean, it's just so important. Just thanks to Genevieve for for being on our show and for the work that she does daily. Just unbelievable. And we have just an awesome lineup, Matt, of of guests coming up. So next is my friend Jaime, who is the executive director of an organization called Artworks. And he's 
amazing. I'm in love with him. And I also want to set him up. So if there's anybody listening out there, we're going to play matchmaker with Jaime. So that is next. I want everybody to tune in for that. I want Genevieve, you're listening to this. I want you to tune into that. And I think that's all I got. Ashley, is there any last minute nugget of information, anything that you want to share with Genevieve? Yes, Matt, as a matter of fact, I am ready with something now that you've teed me up. Envision, Envision Consulting, where we both work, is launching a TikTok account. And we are going to be creating some nonprofit on the rocks posts for the account. And so we just want our listeners to be on the lookout for Envision's TikTok account. You mean Envision Consulting, the company that I don't talk about very much and my partner gets very upset about it. Envision Consulting, this national organization that we have serving nonprofits across the country is launching a TikTok station of its own? That is, and I don't think it's called a station. It's it's not? (laughs) An account, but yes. What do the kids call it? I think they, they call it an account. A TikTok account? Are you sure? I mean, a Twitter account, a Facebook. Is it like a? Is it? Is there like a TikTok handle? Or yeah, yeah, there's a handle. So, but like, is that your account, or how does this work? We're both showing our age now. Now I not only look over forty-three, I sound over forty-three. You know, we won't know you're over forty-three once you get that Botox. So that that is what we've learned in this episode. You and I don't know anything about TikTok, but yes. We're launching TikTok and I'm so excited about it. It's going to be awesome. I hope people watch, tune in, listen, learn more about what we do because we are really a phenomenal company. Speaking of social media accounts or stations, as Matt calls them, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. And we also stream on YouTube. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and tune in for our next episode with Jaime at Artworks.